Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore, if, if we've never met. Um, I actually want to say one quick thing that is not connected to what I'm going to talk about. I mean, it is because it kind of undergirds everything, but it's not what I, I wrote down to, to kind of start off with. And that, that is that every time we sing that song that we sang in the middle, um, the, the song that uh, is, is Who You Say I Am, um, there's a line in it that says, in my father's house, there's a place for me. <laughs> And I, I can almost never get through it, even talking about it or singing it, without feeling something. Um, because for a long time, I did not think there was a place in this house, in the church house, in my father's house for me. Um, and I know, because I know many of you and I know your stories, that you have felt the exact same way. And I know that in a room this size with this many folks in it, there is a great chance that you are here and you are still feeling that way. And I want you to know that if you have been told that implicitly or explicitly, that there is not a place in this house or in your father's house and God's house for you, you have been lied to, and I'm so sorry that that happened. Because there is a place for you. Here at Restore, and there is a place in the kingdom of God for you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you walked in here with. And I don't think that really anything else that I have to say or that we have to say matters if you don't really understand the depth of God's love for you. And not some like idealized version of you that you're gonna get to in the future when you do all the right things, but the love he has for you right now, wherever you are, however you sit, whatever you came in here with. He loves you. There is a place for you in God's house. So I want you to know that even before we get started. I spent the vast majority of my adolescence thinking that everything associated with Christianity um, was cheesy and stupid. Uh, sorry for being blunt there. Um, everything except one thing, and that was a band called Switchfoot. Prior to getting kicked out of my youth group, which is a story that many of you have heard, and if you haven't, I'd love to take you to coffee and, and tell you that story sometime. Um, but before that happened, I walked into youth group one Wednesday night, against my will as always, right? And at first glance, everything was the same as every other Wednesday night, right? My youth pastor ruthlessly dominating middle schoolers in basketball, right? He was like notorious for never letting anyone else win. Um, I don't know if that came from something in his childhood or what was going on, but man, he did not let you win. Um, that was happening, right, kind of over here where the basketball area was, and then over here there was kind of the, the pretty and the popular high school kids in a very tight circle praying together, right? They were holding hands, and, and I really think that the prayer was just an excuse to be really close to each other. I don't think you need to interlock fingers in a prayer circle, but they were, right? That was happening. So that was happening kind of on, on one side. That was, that was pretty normal. And then, of course, terrible Christian music playing over the hand-me-down speakers from the 80s just blaring. 
But that night, I remember standing arms crossed in the foyer of our youth area and a song called Friends Are Friends Forever, some of you may remember, finished playing. And there were a few moments of silence over the speakers that let me know somebody was changing the music. And as I silently prayed for someone to accidentally slide an Eminem album into the CD player, I heard something that I have never heard before. It sounded like this. That moment, like my life changed. That moment, I heard that over the speakers and I didn't know if Jesus was coming back or if some rebellious kid had tampered with the music and put a rock album in, but, but I knew that was amazing. I liked that. I looked back at the sound booth and I saw a guy named Randy back there nodding his head and along with the beat. And Randy was kind of the second in command in our youth group. Um, and uh, I think he was like youth associate or something like that was his title, but that didn't matter. Like everybody loved Randy. Even if like whenever we had trouble with like our youth pastor or anything like that, like Randy was the go-to guy. Like we loved Randy. In fact, Randy and I are still good friends. He planted a church up in like the North Austin Round Rock area a few years ago. We're still great friends to this day. But I look up there and I say to Randy, who is this? And Randy says, Switchfoot. He says, come up here, come up here and listen to it. So I walked back to the sound booth and I I jammed out with Randy to switch foot for the very first time. Now, does anyone know what that song was called, the one we just heard the intro for, the one I heard that night? This is your life. This is your life. Switchfoot asked me a profound question that night. One that has stuck with me since the first time I heard it. Even as an adult, it comes into my mind. When I'm fighting with my wife, it's there. When I'm short with my kids, it's there. When I'm trying to make a decision at Restore, it's there. And the question is simply this. This is your life. Are you who you want to be? This is your life. Are you who you want to be? Now, unfortunately, I often operate with other questions in mind instead of that one. I think my default question is something like, what am I obligated to do in this situation? Or if I'm being really vulnerable with you are, sometimes it's even more like, what is the minimum required of me in this situation just to kind of make it through? I don't think that's just me. I think that many of us operate and default to questions like that. It's just because we have so much going on, so many things pulling at our attention, and most of the time we're just trying to make it through a day, right? And this was just as true of humanity during the time of Jesus when he was on earth as it is now. And sadly, it is especially true of religious leaders in that first century when Jesus was walking around. Listen to this exchange between Jesus and one of those religious leaders. It says, on one occasion, an expert in religious law, that was the religious leader, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live, but... He wanted to justify himself. 
So the religious leader asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Trying to justify himself, the religious leader asks, who though? Who is my neighbor? Last week, we talked about some of the kind of racism and nationalism behind this question from the religious leader, right? He and everyone else who would have heard it would have thought that really they were only required to love Jewish people, maybe even only certain types of Jewish people, right? But Jesus goes on to clarify that it's clearly not the case. Last week, we learned that when anyone, including us, asks who they are supposed to love, God says everyone. When we ask which people, Jesus says all people, every single time. Anything else to the contrary, any distinction that we may make, any qualification we put on loving people is directly contrary to the teachings of Scripture. Anytime we restrict the love that God has or that we have for anyone else, we stand in direct opposition to what Jesus has taught and who Jesus is. So last week, that's what we talked about. We, we see Jesus answering kind of the who behind this question. But through the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus also not just tells us who we are supposed to love, but how we are supposed to love. Because baked in to this question of who is my neighbor from the religious leader is the question that many of us, including myself, struggle with too. And that is, what's the minimum required of me in this situation? What am I really obligated to do? Because the religious leader really is saying, okay, Jesus, I I hear you. I I hear you that that loving you and and loving God, loving my neighbor is the way to get to eternal life. But tell me, what exactly is required of me in that? What is the minimum amount of neighbor love that I have to put forth to secure my place in heaven? What must I do to inherit eternal life, he asks. So in response to this very loaded question, Jesus tells the now famous story of the Good Samaritan, which is not just who we are supposed to love, which we kind of focused in on last week, but how we are called to love them as well. Now just in case you missed the story last week, here's a refresher. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, which is kind of like the second in command in the temple, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now enters the Samaritan. But a Samaritan, Jesus says, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, which is basically two days' wages. And he said, look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you have. Here, here's all the money that we've spent so far at your place. Like, just use it, take care of him, and, and keep taking care of him. If there's any more, I'll bring more money back. Whatever you need to do, take care of this man. And as I said, last week we focused in on the who we are supposed to love, centered around this relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. If you don't remember, they they absolutely hated each other. And Jesus kind of used the disdain between these two people groups to illustrate that we are supposed to love everyone, even people that may be considered like our enemies or people that we don't like. This quote from Atlanta pastor Andy Stanley, I think, says it perfectly. It's become one of my very favorite. He says, love for God 
is best illustrated, demonstrated, and authenticated by love for others who are nothing like you and may not even like you. I love that. Love for God is best authenticated, demonstrated, and illustrated by loving other people who may not even look like you and may not even like you. That's how we know that God's love is flowing through us to our neighbors. This is the call for Christians. This is a call for all of us, radical, inclusive, sacrificial love of all people. But even though that truth is incredibly important, I realize it can be a little theoretical, right? A little abstract. Yeah, we're supposed to just love everyone, but what does that actually look like in my day-to-day life? Thankfully, this story goes much deeper than just who to love. It tells us how we are supposed to love as well. So I want to show you, with the rest of our time together, three absolutely critical things that the Samaritan did as he loved this neighbor of his, that I believe we must emulate if we want to love our neighbors the way Jesus has called us to. These three things, they answer the question of how we are called to love others. They are so vital. So I'm gonna encourage you, I don't often do this, but, but write them down, take notes in your phone. There's little pieces of paper in each of your seats and on the back they've got cards you can write stuff down on if you're a hand person, whatever. But, but remember these, because I think they are absolutely, they're very basic, but I think they're vital. If we want to love others, love our neighbor the way that Jesus has called us to. Here's the first one. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. First thing, the Samaritan saw the man in need. He refused to turn away. He refused to walk on by. He saw him. This is the first step in loving others. We must see people. We must see need. We have to see them. This is the first step, and honestly, it's the hardest because a lot of us have trained ourselves to look away from pain, to look away from problems because it brings us down or it it makes us feel uncomfortable. Additionally, it's also kind of difficult to see people's needs sometimes because they work so often to hide them. They don't like to share. We, as a society, don't like to share because we kind of live in a culture or a society that often shames people or, or calls them weak for being in need. And that has made us reluctant of being really open and authentic about what is actually going on in our lives. That's why it's vital that we check on people. Check on people that you love. Ask them how they are doing. And when, them, when they inevitably just say, I'm fine, ask again. Ask a little bit deeper, push a little bit. No, 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 I I know you're fine, but how are you really actually doing? We have to see the need, and that has to come first. And if we don't see it, if we don't seek it out, nothing else matters, right? That's where it starts. We must see the need first. That's number one. Next, the good Samaritan allowed himself to be moved by what he saw. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. When he saw him, He felt compassion for him. He didn't just see him. He felt compassion for him. He didn't harden his heart. He didn't see the need and kind of turn off that human part of us that we all have that's like, oh, yeah, that's bad, but I I don't want to mess with that right now. He didn't turn it off. He leaned into it. He allowed himself to be human by recognizing human suffering in another person. 
That's number two. We don't just see, we have to feel. It starts with seeing the need. And then we have to be able to feel compassion. He felt something. It's not enough to just see it. We have to feel it too. And this, I think, is the most often overlooked step for people. Because, okay, spoiler alert, number three is act. We have to do something, right? Hopefully you saw that coming. That's obvious, right? Loving people causes us to actually step out in faith and, and act and do something. But so many times we never get to the last step. We never make it there because we don't allow ourselves to be moved by what's happening. We don't allow ourselves to feel. And there are a lot of reasons for this, but I actually think one of the biggest ones is desensitization. Because of the news and social media, we see terrible things all the time. All the time. You log on to the internet, Facebook, Twitter, even Instagram, you watch the news, you read news articles online. Most of us wake up to emails with news or news alerts every single morning and we see so many things that we get jaded. We become hardened. We may see the need but we're never moved to action because it doesn't really make us feel anything anymore. We're so desensitized to it. I don't even think this like, is because we're bad people. I actually think humans don't have the emotional capacity to deal with everything we are exposed to day in and day out. It's so overwhelming. We, we simply weren't built for this. Think about it. We quite literally can't be moved by everything we see or we would just be totally immobilized by all of it. We can only handle so much, so our bodies and brains oftentimes have no choice but to just kind of shut it out, to not let ourselves feel it. And if this is you, and I think it's a lot of us, I mean, it's definitely me on occasion, but if this is you, if you find yourself never really feeling any of the needs around you, my challenge to you today is to just, is to narrow your focus a little bit. Take a break from the news, take a little break from social media and work on seeing and feeling the needs right around you. Your family members, your friends, your coworkers, the people you drive by on the streets day in and day out, the needs in, in, in your community, in your family, in our city. Just take a little break. Work on those for a moment because then and only then do I think you can take the last step. Back to our story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, number one, he took pity on him, number two. And then lastly, he went to him, bandaged his wounds and so on and so forth and took care of him. He saw the man. He allowed himself to feel compassion and now he is moved to do something. The last step is simply to act. We must see the need. We must allow ourselves to feel compassion. And then we must go to it. That's what it said the Samaritan did, right? He went to him. This is what it means to love people like Jesus has asked us to love people. This is what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves. We see the need, we feel compassion, we take action. Now, at the risk of, of sounding thoroughly unimpressive to you all, let me say that like see and feel and act isn't exactly groundbreaking, right? 
as I walked through most of that, a lot of you were probably thinking, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I get that. Maybe I've never packaged it like that or seen it like that or, or seen it from the Good Samaritan story like this, but, but these are basic things. These are things that we all pretty much understand. This is how it works. This is how we help people. So why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? Why is much of our world so devoid of neighbor love? Why don't we see this happening all around us all the time? What is getting in the way? I think there are probably a lot of reasons. Some of them more malicious ones, like we we talked about last week, right? Things like racism and and prejudice. But I'm convinced that the biggest thing that gets in the way of us loving people, at first glance, it seems pretty innocuous. It seems just like a really normal thing. But actually, the way that it kind of takes control of our lives a lot of times, it is just as sinister as those kind of terrible things we covered last week. Most of us don't love people like this because we don't have the margin to. Most of us don't love people like Jesus has asked us to love people because we don't have the margin to do so. This lack of margin manifests itself in in all different areas of our lives. Like we just talked about, a lot of us have no emotional margin left. We are so overexposed and overwhelmed by the constant barrage of pain and need in our world that we just become paralyzed. There's so much to do, so we just do nothing. We don't feel like we can fix everything, so we don't even fix one thing. Another piece of this is that many of us have no margin in our schedules. We are so overcommitted that we don't feel like we have time to step in and actually help someone in need. We read a story like the Good Samaritan and most of us cannot imagine stopping on our way to work and taking an entire day off to help someone in need. Picking them up, putting them in our car, taking them to the hospital, staying with them overnight, giving two days wages to the doctor to say take care of them and then coming back and we we have no category for that. Most of us barely stop to like eat breakfast. We can't imagine stopping and taking an entire day to help someone. We have no margin in our schedules. But there's also an issue of financial margin. Most of us are are living at or above our means, so even if an opportunity like this came along to love someone really well, like the guy who'd been beaten up on his way to Jericho, we couldn't help him like the Good Samaritan did. We don't have two days wages to give to a doctor to say, take care of this person because we are so living at or above our means, we have no financial margin to do this. I'm convinced if we want to love our neighbor like Jesus has commanded, we have to create some margin in our lives. We have to. We have to narrow our focus a little bit. Now again, there there are a bunch of different ways to do this, but I truly believe there is one most effective way And I'm going to tell you about it with the rest of our time together, the last 10 minutes of this. When I first heard it, it was eight years ago. I was at a conference in Dallas. And since that day, this one thing has absolutely transformed my life, my family's life, everything about the way that we care for our neighbors. And it is simply this. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. 
Listen, you can't do everything for everyone, but you can do something for someone. You with me? You can't do everything for everyone, but you can do something for someone. You can't change everyone's life, but if you trust Jesus and you allow yourself to be used by him, you can be a part of changing one life. One life right in front of you. And listen, I'm not, I'm not speculating here. I'm not saying this, this might be true or theoretically it could be true. I'm speaking for what I've seen Jesus do in my life every time I've trusted him, every time I've stepped out in faith and done for one what I wished I could do for everyone. Now hear me. You all know me most of well enough. I am far from the perfect example on, on anything, and that includes this. I've, I've messed it up. I've gotten in the way more times than I'd like to admit. But I want to just tell you one amazing story about how I've seen this truth of doing for one what I wish I could do for everyone come to life in my personal story. I met Austin Ochoa back in the summer of 2009 when I was 19 and he was 13. That's me. I don't know if you can tell. I have a lot more hair at that point. And the black shirt there, my face is right above the fist. That's me. Austin is the kid that I'm looking at right there. He's got the little headband on. He's got the blue shirt with the white lettering on. We were at FCA camp in Abilene, Texas, summer of 2009. 19 years old, 7th grader, 13 years old. And, and, and Austin actually, the way this camp was set up, we were, we called, they were called huddles. They were like small groups, right? So you had a huddle. I was a huddle leader. A couple of other people and my friends were huddle leaders, right? And, and all the different kids were in different huddles. Austin actually wasn't even in my huddle. Austin was in one of my best friend Wayne's huddle. But he was just this like pestering 13-year-old, Right? just around us 24-7, just following Wayne and I. Even when we were like supposed to be having like huddle leader adult break time, right? Austin was just like right there next to all of us, asking questions. You could tell that he was a little bit on the fence about this whole Jesus thing, about the church thing, about the Bible thing. He didn't really understand. And, and I'm gonna tell you very honestly that my first inclination with Austin was to tell him to go away, okay? because he was kind of annoying and he wasn't in my huddle, right? I had a responsibility for my 10 or 11 guys in my huddle and I was supposed to be doing all that I could for them and Austin was just kind of, I felt like he was messing it up. I felt like he was getting in the way of it. But God absolutely broke my heart for this kid over that week. And I went from feeling annoyed every time he was around to feeling overjoyed when I would see him. And I realized that as I, I dug deeper into Austin's story, that he was really on the fence about the Jesus thing and the church thing and the Bible thing and the Christian thing because he had had some really tough experiences in his little 13 years of life. When we talked about the unconditional love of God, he didn't have a category for that. How could someone love him unconditionally? And even if God loved him unconditionally, God was so far away. I mean, I prayed to him. He doesn't talk back. These were the kind of questions that he asked. And I realized one night as I was thinking about Austin and praying for him in the middle of camp, God, what am I supposed to do with this kind of annoying kid? God said, I want you to love him like I love him. He can't understand 
what it's like for me to love him like that. He, he's not there. He can't experience that. I'm so far away for him, but you know that I'm not far away, and you know what it's like to experience my unconditional love, so I want you to give it to him. I want you to love him like I love him. And Zach, I know you don't have the strength for it. I know you don't have the power for it. I know you don't have the patience for it. But if you'll trust me, I'll do it through you, Zach. That's what God said. And so I said, okay. And I did. And to be honest, I don't even really know what happened or when it happened, but like the last night of camp, during the little invitation, Austin walked down the front. He said, I'm in. I had a lot of questions. I didn't understand it. I doubt I answered any of the questions correctly. But I loved him. I did for him what I wish I could have done for every single kid at that camp and every single kid that I've ever met who's had a tough first 13 years of life. I just tried to love him. He became a Christian at that camp, and then back in 2016, we started this church in February. That summer, we had something called BabtQ. And at BabtQ, a few months before Austin's now living in San Antonio, Austin gives me a call and he says, you know what, you were there when I became a Christian. You and Wayne, you guys led me to Christ. You showed me what it's like. Did you know I've never been baptized? I'm like, no, Austin, I didn't know you'd never been baptized. He was like, I saw BabtQ on Facebook. I want you to baptize me. And so this is Austin at BabtQ, me and him. Seven years later, yeah, we texted occasionally, we had a couple of phone calls, we Facebook messaged back and forth, but I had no idea the amount of work that Jesus had been doing in his life over those seven years. And I tell you, that was one of the most special things I have ever experienced in my pastoral ministry life, was getting to be the one that baptized Austin. And then a few months ago, I guess it was back in the summer of last year, summer of 2019, I get a call from Austin. And he says, hey, I'm, I'm coaching at this middle school in San Antonio, right, and, and we really wanna do more for the community. We really wanna to help people out. We wanna demonstrate the love of Jesus for people. And, and I don't really know how to do that, but I saw that you guys do this thing called Socktober. I saw it on Facebook. It looks super cool. Could we do Socktober at this middle school that I'm at in San Antonio? Uh, yeah, man, I, didn't, I stole it. I didn't make it up, you know? So, yeah, let's do it. Whatever you need. So we sent him how we do everything, sent him a bunch of graphics, sent him everything that we had, and just said, man, copy it, edit it, put it to work, however you want to do it. And so at Eisenhower Middle School in San Antonio, they did Socktober for the first time, and this is what it looked like. I don't know if you can read that little whiteboard sign there, but 3,127 pairs of socks. Austin set the goal for 1,000. They more than tripled it. They gave away more socks than we did this year. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Literally, over twice as many people in need in our Austin San Antonio community got socks this year during Socktober because of Jesus' work through Austin. It was such a big deal in San Antonio that a local news station picked up the story. Watch this clip, it's amazing. 
Well, in this week's Good For You, we're talking about kids helping kids who need a little helping hand. Students at Eisenhower Middle School came up with a really cool idea. They are collecting socks to give to a local shelter. And joining us to talk about that uh, in this so-called Socktober month that they've coined are athletic coordinator Colby Rapp and Austin Ochoa. Thank you so much with Eisenhower Middle School. We appreciate you guys coming in today. Um, you reached out on Twitter, and yes, I thought, well, you need to get in here today. <laughs> so thanks for making that happen. First of all, how would you guys come up with this idea? Uh, so my mentor, uh, Zach Lambert, he's actually the lead pastor at Restore Austin. Uh, so he actually started us October a couple years ago, and whenever I got this job um, here at Eisenhower Middle School, I said, you know, what can we do to reach out to the community? And yeah. he said, why don't we bring Socktober to Eisenhower Middle School? Oh, that's um, cool, So I yeah. got with Coach Rapp, I got with Mr. Smith, our principal, and then here we are. Okay. Look, I, I still feel like I did very little <laughs> in this entire situation. Like, even, even hearing him call me his mentor, you know, I'm like, I don't even know what that means. Honestly. As a 19-year-old at a camp, I saw a kid who needed some love. And I didn't have all these categories at the time, but I'm telling you that I saw him. Jesus allowed me to be moved by what had happened to him, and then I just tried to act. I just tried to love him. I just tried to show him and demonstrate to him the love that I had gotten, that I had received. I had even, I'd been a Christian for like two years at this point. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. He asked so many questions. And I'm telling you, I bet I butchered every single one of them, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Because that kid felt the love of Jesus through my little offering. It's like the story of the kid who had the five fish and the two loaves, right? And there are 20,000 hungry people on a hillside. And the disciples and Jesus are like, we should feed him. And this little kid steps up and he's like, I got two loaves of bread and I got five fish. Jesus, can you do something with this? And he fed every single person on that hillside. Uh, this is all I have, Jesus. I, I don't know the answers. I don't know how to exegete all the scriptures. I don't know any of that, but I can love this kid. Can you do something with that? And 11 years later, look what Jesus did. This is what Jesus can do when we love people right in front of us. If we will just see people, allow ourselves to feel compassion for them, and then move to action when the Holy Spirit leads us to do so, Jesus will change people's lives. He will change the world. I'm being serious when I say that. I really think that Jesus uses love like this, neighbor love, to change the world. Because think about it, if we actually did this, if you and I, if everyone in this room, everybody listening online, if every one of us did this, if we loved people, like Jesus asked us to, if we did for one what we wish we could do for everyone, the multiplication that would happen. Because then they would do for one what they wish they could do for everyone. 
And then they would do for one what they wished they could do for everyone. And pretty soon, our community, our city, our state, our country, our world would change. But because of a a real or, or even just perceived lack of margin in our lives, the vast majority of people walk through life without ever having loved their neighbor like Jesus commanded. Most of us are just so overwhelmed that we walk through life asking just what's the minimum required of me to get through this. But that's such a tragic way to live, I think. I think it hurts the people around us. That's easy, but I think it hurts us too. I don't want to just get through life. I don't want to just do the bare minimum and get by. I don't know about you, but I want to be the person who stops on the side of the road and takes an entire day off from work when I see someone hurting. I want to be someone who does for one what I wish I could do for everyone. But it's not enough to just want our lives to be this way, to just wish it would happen. Being who we want to be, being the neighbor that Jesus has called us to be comes down to the choices we make each and every day. Like Switchfoot so perfectly reminds us, today is all you've got now. And today is all you'll ever have. Don't close your eyes. Don't look past needs. Don't turn the other way. Don't cross on the other side of the street. Don't close your eyes because this is your life. Are you who you want to be? So here's my challenge for you and for me. Create some margin so that you can see people, so that you can feel compassion, so that you can act on their needs and then love your neighbor as yourself by doing for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And then watch as Jesus changes your life, their life, and the world around you. Let me pray. God, you are so good. Like we just sang about, God, you deserve every song we could ever sing, all of the glory that we could ever give. You deserve not just our entire lives, God, but our choices every single day. We want to be who you have called us to be, God. We want to love our neighbor as ourselves. We want to see people. We want to feel needs. And we want to move to action, God. So empower us to do that. Even now, in our minds, bring to mind someone who you are calling us to love in real and tangible ways. The one. God. And then change the world multiply our little offerings as we do for one or we wish we could do for everyone, God. Multiply those offerings and change our community, our city, and our world, God, with your love. We just sang it. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. Help us to build our lives on this love that you have for us and then that love flow through us to our neighbor around us. 
We believe you that you can do this. We are instruments in your hands to be used by you as you share the radical love that you have for everyone with each of our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. After he, you know, after Jesus finished the story of the Good Samaritan, there's this one final exchange between Jesus and the religious leader, right? Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Every Sunday since Christmas, I've been telling you that we want to give our church family opportunities to go and do likewise by helping people in tangible ways. And that all started with this thing we're calling Find My Place, loving and serving everyone who steps foot in Restore. That's connection team, kids team, worship with band and production, and set up and tear down. We have two more weeks of Find My Place, and our goal, hear me, our goal is for everyone to fill out a card and to find your place. For everyone to do that, for everyone to let Jesus use you to tangibly love our church family and every single person who steps foot in here. If you're already on a team, grab a card, recommit for 2020, find your place. Our community pastor, John, is gonna come up here with Kelly Keith to highlight the connection team and tell you more about Find My Place in in just a moment. But first, I wanna tell you about one more opportunity to tangibly love our neighbors that is coming up. We're simply calling it Partnership Month. February, next month, is Partnership Month. And the first week of February, February 2nd, we are going to enter into something as a church called the Matthew 25 Challenge. If you're familiar with the story in Matthew 25, it's when Jesus is talking about how um, it, that, that he has been loved by these people and, and these people are like, well, when, when did we love you? When did we, when did we feed you when you were hungry? When did we give you water when you were thirsty? When did we welcome you when you were a stranger? When, when did we visit you when you were in prison? And Jesus says, you did this for the least of these. You did it for me. It's all these beautiful categories of of people who are in need. And so Matthew 25, on February 2nd, we're going to all have the opportunity to opt in to the Matthew 25 challenge. And every morning for that next week, we're going to receive text messages and instructions for actually how to identify with one of those groups each and every day. To do really cool things like, like only drinking water for one day. Not drinking coffee or alcohol or Coke or anything else. For one day, we only drink water and that whole day we're praying for people who don't even have clean water. One day we're only eating rice and beans, right, to to remind ourselves of the fact that for a lot of people, this is not just their daily diet, but this is their everyday diet forever. Do things like wearing the same clothes you wore the day before and realize that the vast majority of people in our world don't have a ton of changes of clothes, that they have new day, every day they change clothes. Sleeping on the floor one night with our, your whole family in the living room and remembering that most families in the world sleep on the floor in one room and identifying with those people around the world, our neighbors around the world. And then that next Sunday, we're gonna give you the opportunity to actually help and serve people who are experiencing poverty and a lack of clean water and all those different things through an organization called World Vision that we're partnered with. It's gonna be a beautiful, beautiful day. That's Sunday the 9th of Partnership Month. 
And then Sunday the 16th, we're all going to meet here, just like normal Sunday mornings, 10 a.m., grab some breakfast tacos, then we're gonna split up on the teams and we're gonna go serve our local community nonprofit partners all over this city. We did that for the first time last year. It was amazing if you got to be a part of it. So much fun. We're gonna do that again on the 16th. It's just gonna keep going after that. Partnership month. We want to give you tangible ways to serve and love your neighbor. We don't just wanna talk about it. We wanna be about it, okay? So right now, John and Kelly are gonna come up, tell you a little bit more about Find My Place.